Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology in which nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, the weekly podcast illuminating issues in agriculture and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of driving innovation to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Paul Vincelli. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Folta, and today we're going to be talking about a disease that is one of the most important plant diseases to uh, epidemics to have occurred in North America, and that is the blight of chestnut, the American chestnut. And our speaker today is Dr. Jared Westbrook from the American Chestnut Foundation, and uh, one of the premier people to really discuss this topic and give us some insight into where we've been and where we're going. So Jared, uh, welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast, and, and thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. American chestnut and, and the chestnut blight is, is something that we plant pathologists have studied and, and always make sure our, our students learn something about. Um, but uh, we may have listeners who know very little about the subject. And so uh, maybe maybe you could start, Jared, by giving us an overview of, of the American chestnut. And then, then we'll, of course, move into the chestnut blight itself, the biology and importance. But give us, give us a sense of, uh, you know, the importance of the American chestnut in the history of the United States? Well, the American chestnut was a dominant uh, canopy tree species in the eastern United States. It has a range that stretched from Alabama, Mississippi, all the way up into Maine and Ontario. And in the Appalachian Mountains in particular, it was particularly uh, economically important species. The people of the Appalachians used the seeds for a source of food. They fed their livestock uh, on the chestnut seeds. The wood was lightweight and rot-resistant, and many structures, barns and uh, railroad ties, fence, uh, fence posts all around the eastern United States and the mountains were made of American chestnut. And uh, in the 1900s, 1904 is actually when the chestnut blight was discovered in the Bronx Zoo on uh, presumably nursery stock from Asia. So Japanese chestnuts, we were importing chestnuts from Asia for nut production. And 
this disease, it colonizes the bark of chestnut. It, um, it's a fungus. It gets into the wounds. It secretes um, something that makes the bark very acidic, oxa- oxalic acid, and that creates a canker on the stem and it girdles the stem and the tree dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, so luckily, it, you know, it's able to re-sprout from um, once it gets killed, the top gets killed. But basically, this disease was... Um, introduced in 1904 and it spread across the entire range of the American chestnut by 1950 and killed nearly 4 billion trees. It's today's functionally extinct. Yeah, it's functionally extinct. Yeah, that, that's a good phrase. I, yeah, and I've seen, you know, the stump sprouts of American chestnut, but you're right, there's no, I have never seen a fully grown American chestnut. One, one of the statistics that impressed me in a in a you know in a negative way I should say but still the 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 the, the importance of this issue really came home when I realized that one out of ten sorry, one out of four if I've got this statistic right one out of four trees in the Appalachian region was American chestnut so everywhere you look American chestnut was dominant you know would would, would be roughly one out of four is that is that a correct statistic or have I miss I mean, yes, that especially in it's a locally abundant tree. So like in the ridge tops of the Appalachian Mountains, you can find many stump sprouts today. So, yes, it was locally abundant. I wouldn't think that the over the entire eastern United mm-hmm. States, it was one in four trees. But certainly uh, when the areas where it's most well suited, it's habitat is it's, it grows best is uh, like these well-drained soils in the, in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And there it was lo- locally abundant, one mm-hmm. in four. Okay. So, so tell us about chestnut blight. Basically, it's a necrotrophic pathogen. It kills, um, it, it goes in and it colonizes the stem of the tree. And um, it kills the uh, growing tissue, the cambium of the stem. And it basically feeds off of that tissue as it's, um, it kills the, that tissue and feeds off of it. And then it um, is transmitted via spores and insects and birds to other trees. So it's ubiquitous and naturalized within North America. And it's, it comes from Asia. Um, so so North- basically our, our trees, American chestnut trees, were, didn't, didn't co-evolve with this fungus. And so when it was introduced, it really wreaked havoc. Exactly, and the and the Asian species of chestnut, Chinese chestnut, Japanese chestnut, they have co-evolved with chestnut blight, so they are resistant to the disease. They still get chestnut blight, but they um, the cankers are tend to be confined to smaller areas on the stem, so the tree has some resistance, and it doesn't affect the growth. Um, it doesn't really kill the main stem of the trees. Yeah, so it's it was a pretty much a uh, you know a, uh, just one of the most destructive epidemics we've seen in in uh, North America on any on any plant and uh, remains important today. So so you are the uh, you know I, I didn't I don't think I gave your your title. You're the director of science at the American Chestnut Foundation, and um, and uh, and in fact, I've heard you speak on the topic of chestnut blight, and uh, so so tell us. Many listeners may have uh, not heard of the American Chestnut Foundation. So tell us about that organization. Well, the American Chestnut Foundation's 
mission is simple. It's to restore the American chestnut back to the Eastern forest. It's not, it's simple in, in what we're doing, like what we're, our goal is, but it's anything but simple in terms of the implementation. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, not only are, are we dealing with uh, chestnut blight as something that affects, um, you know, hinders the restoration of American chestnut, but uh, we also have a second pathogen, Phytophthora cinnamomi, which colonizes the roots of American chestnut. American chestnut is very susceptible to this pathogen, which was also introduced from Asia. It, it, in contrast to chestnut blight, this root pathogen um, kills the trees outright. So the tr- uh, it's thought that you know the introduction of Phytophthora from you know crops from. Uh, Southeast Asia uh, wiped out American chestnut from the lower elevation forests of the southeastern United States prior to the introduction of chestnut blight. So we have two pathogens that we're um, Mm -hmm. trying to introduce resistance to into these populations. And we're also trying to capture the native diversity that's remaining in the forest so the trees will be able to... uh, you know, adapt to any sort of future climates that are occurring. So there's, you know, the population now is about 450 million roots routes um, that are remaining in the forest out of 4 billion trees. And we need to capture much of that diversity so this species can continue to evolve on its own. Mm. So when you say capture, you mean get live plant material from additional trees and bring it into your... uh Plantation is that is that yeah get it get this live material from wild trees uh, you know we've been opportunistically finding flowering American chestnuts in um, clear cuts in the sides of like where power lines power line right aways um, areas where homes have been introduced roads you know with the, sometimes as this light you know light inter, um, stimulates these trees to flower. And they'll flower for like a year and then they'll die back from the blight. So we can do some breeding with that material for a short period of time. And so we've been using that as the the starting point for breeding in blight resistance and phytophthora resistance into our populations. Okay. So how do you, how do you include those trees in the breeding program? You collect pollen from them and. You know, there's really been two approaches that have gone on in parallel um, to restore the American chestnut. The first started in the 1980s. It's um, called backcross crossbreeding, and basically, you take Asian chestnut species and you hybridize them with American chestnut, and you get a you know 50-50 Chinese American hybrid, and then backcross that hybrid to American chestnut over three different generations to essentially dilute out genes uh, from Chinese chestnut, except for those involved in blight resistance. So each generation, we plant out um, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of trees um, from these crosses, and we inoculate them with a chestnut blight fungus, and we select those individuals with the least severe cankers for advancing to future um, breeding. So that's been going on, and now we have, we're getting to the point where we are finishing the selection of the most disease-resistant trees in the backcross breeding program. In, in uh, the third generation? 
so we we've done you know three generations of back crossing and then we also take those most resistant hybrids and we cross them together yeah. to enhance resistance further okay. and so we we're, yeah we end up uh screening tens of thousands of trees to get to a hundred a few hundred selections so what uh, is it how long does a generation take the generations for American chestnut take about five to ten years for the trees to flower. Yeah, so that's it's pretty. You know, you really have to be ready for a long term commitment when you're uh, when you're when you're working with trees, certainly. And and so you've so to review, you've you've reached uh, the third backcross generation, and now you're intercrossing some of, some of the best looking plant material to further enhance the resistance. Is that right? And we have, we have done that. And now we're even selecting among the intercross, uh, the progeny of the intercrosses. Okay. So that's, that's the final um, selection is we have these seed orchards where we're, you know, we've planted, you know, 60,000 trees and we're getting down to 500 trees. And uh, one of the things that I've been working on is uh, using genomics to, figure out where the genes for resistance are in these populations and then to be able to predict the resistance of the remaining trees by with DNA sequencing so we can speed up the selection process. Mm-hmm. And, and so that should happen in the next five to 10 years when we've actually finished selection in the backcross program. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what I'm uh, imagining is marker-assisted selection, the other the, uh, sort of the phrase that describes that. Is that right? Yeah, it's genomic selections. So we're not just using a few markers. We're using the whole genome uh, uh, composed of hundreds of thousands of markers to predict disease resistance. Okay, gotcha. And so for for the listeners, we're, we're, we're going to talk here in, in a few minutes about uh, um, biotechnological. Well, that is a biotechnological approach, but uh, genetic engineering approaches that have been done uh, with American Chestnut as well. And so what your, what your program does is is actually not um, genetic engineering, um, direct manipulation of the DNA for purposes of enhancing resistance, but you use the, the, the DNA information, the sequence information, to enhance the natural, the conventional breeding processes. Is that a good description? Yeah, that's a good description. But uh, and that and that is indeed what we are doing. There's a second in an approach with biotechnology. Sure. Since the 1990s, researchers at the State University of New York, um, Bill Powell and Chuck Maynard, they've been seeking a transgenic approach to introduce blight resistance into American chestnut. And they spent about 15 years just working on the... um, Well, one of the things to to actually do the genetic transformation of chestnut, insert genes into chestnut, is you have to be able to um, clone the trees from... Um, cell culture. So they had to create these cell cultures in order to introduce genes into American chestnut. So they spent 15 years just on that technical mm-hmm. hurdle. Okay. And then the second technical hurdle was figuring out what, what gene or genes to insert into American chestnut to enhance its blood resistance. And they found that this gene from wheat, oxalate oxidase, which basically the fungus that secretes a lot of this oxalic acid, which creates the blight fungus secretes oxalic acid, which creates these cankers. And what the ox- oxalate oxidase gene does is it um, neutralizes that um, the secretion of that oxalate so that 
basically the, the fungus can still live. It's not killing the blight fungus, but it's making it less pathogenic on American chestnut. Uh, so, you know, the tree will, this, this fungus can still reproduce in the wild. So conceivably, you know, it's not being select, you know, it's not going to overcome the resistance. So the selection, you know, the, it's not being selected against by this oxalate oxidase gene. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was, so yeah, it's actually a really interesting story, and, and for listeners, um, one of the very first Talking Biotech podcasts was an interview with Dr. Powell, as, as mentioned by, uh, by Jarrett, so um, that's episode number 10, if you're interested in hearing more about that, but um, yeah, I actually, uh, that that's my understanding, you've affirmed what I somehow learned, maybe through a communication with Dr., you know, with uh, Bill Powell, but um, th- this is a really important point. It seems to me, as a plant pathologist, it, it, it is the gene from wheat that 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 degrades the en- this toxic uh, enzyme or de- degrading enzyme. Um, that is, it doesn't uh, doesn't poison the fungus, and so therefore, there's no should be no selection pressure for the fungus to overcome um, that gene for resistance. I mean, it seems seems a, a reasonable way to you know reasonable hypothesis to go forward with and you know the other thing is that the chestnut blight fungus lives on oak trees it lives on um fallen wood okay uh so it reproduces independently of american chestnut so the selection pressure should be minimal but you know just to hedge our bets here that uh we are planning the american chestnut foundation is is planning on um, pending regulatory approval of the release of this transgenic American chestnut. Uh, is planning on breeding some of the, you know, the transgenic tree with our back cross selections. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have, we're stacking that resistance uh, from the wheat gene and from Chinese chestnut together so that there's this multifaceted resistance where it's very unlikely that the fungus will overcome that resistance. Sure. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a very uh, very defensible and very exciting approach. So, um, I, I want to pursue that, um, but um, let's take a short break, and uh, when we come back, we'll be talking to Dr. Jared Westbrook from the American Chestnut Foundation, and uh, we'll le- learn about uh, what's going on with uh, chestnut improvement to hopefully restore the American chestnut into our forests, and uh, and what might the future be in this area. So. Listeners, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. We are currently being downloaded 20,000 times per month. That's quite a milestone in podcast excellence. We thank you for your loyalty and your continued support. Now, we don't have those big podcast production budgets. Well, Volt does all the production, websites, and funny voices himself. Our continued success and broader impact relies on you, the listener. Write a review on iTunes, throw us some stars, and pump a little gas in the electronic content jalopy on the information superhighway as we race towards mile marker 200. Again, Thanks for listening, and now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast.
And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast with Dr. Jared Westbrook of the American Chestnut Foundation. And uh, he's the director of science there and leading their efforts to, um, to improve the resistance of American chestnut to the chestnut blight fungus and the very destructive disease it causes. So, Jared, once again, thanks for joining us. And there, there's a lot that can be said about um, both approaches to restoration of American chestnut, the program through that, that you're leading and the program that Bill Powell uh, at SUNY New York uh, is, or SUNY uh, is, is leading. And, um, w- but uh, one of the things that, that I, I, I'm just interested in is to hear your experience with the diversity of opinions that might exist on the use of genetic engineering, the, uh, you know, this, this gene from wheat, the oxalate oxidase gene from wheat introduced into American chestnut, there must be diverse opinions about whether that belongs in a restoration program. How, you know, what's your experience and how do you, how do you engage people with, with those diverse uh, opinions? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the concerns is about the uh, biodiversity and, or the genetic diversity of and inbreeding that would result from using this um, transgenic tree. So Bill Powell has introduced oxalate oxidase into one single American chestnut tree that's been cloned. So we're not going to restore the species by planting many clones with this wheat gene. What we need to do to restore the species so it can adapt to the many environments in which it grows is to cross that transgenic tree with uh, wild American chestnuts. Uh, so you're, we capture much of that diversity. But the issue, one of the issues is um, when you do that first cross, you're always, the trees are always going to inherit 50% of their um, genome from this original clone. So in essence, we have to do multiple outcrosses to American chestnuts um, over uh, two or three generations to dilute out, again, those genes from that original clone so that when we do the crossing of these trees, intercrossing in the forest, when they're actually reproducing in the forest, that they will not be inbred. And they won't, uh, the, these trees, uh, especially American chestnut or any outcrossing tree, carries a large load of um, deleterious, recessive kind of mutations in its genome, which when you, you know, do this inbreeding, uh, when you have inbreeding in the population, it could make the population more um, susceptible to all kinds of stresses. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do is recover that diversity and avoid the inbreeding. I think that's one of the main challenges ahead and one that the American Chestnut Foundation, you know, Bill is releasing this, um, potentially releasing this transgenic clone, but then we have this large amount of work to do to capture the diversity of the species um, and avoid the inbreeding. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the one of the things that you commented on in our preliminary discussions was how, you know, with really most genetically engineered crops, there's interest in in preventing or minimizing uh, the the spread of pollen into you know other other plants, other crops surrounding the field, or, or maybe other species. Whereas in the case of American chestnut restoration, you are uh, very very much interested in in this engineered trait moving into, uh, you know, into the, the, the germplasm that, uh, that exists out in, in the wild. So I thought that was an interesting uh, 
you know, an interesting take and, and understandable because uh, without genetic diversity, the, uh, you know, there, there is less adaptability of the American chestnut that hopefully we'll be restoring. And uh, also, as you've noted, there's the um, recessive deleterious genes that might express themselves in a, if, if there's insufficient genetic diversity in the American chestnut population. So, so you're, you're actually wanting to encourage the, the outcrossing of the transgene into multiple, into as many biotypes as possible. Absolutely. And then, the, you know, the, the other thing that there's an advantage with um, crossing the transgenic tree with some backcross material, because we have in the backcross program, resistance to the second pathogen, Phytophthora cinnamomy. And so we can rapidly, rather than with just a pure breeding approach, where there's multiple genes for blight resistance and there's multiple genes for Phytophthora resistance, we have to, every time we, you know, increase the number of genes that we're screening for, we have to plant out many, many individuals. The pro- you know, the, the problem of screening becomes very large and daunting, where... Now we've essentially simplified the problem with using um, a single gene for blight resistance. So 50% of the kids from across will inherit that blight resistance gene from wheat. Uh, We can easily screen for that gene. It's very straightforward. We don't have to inoculate the trees. We can just look for the enzyme activity. And we only plant out those guys in the field and we can screen for phytophthora resistance. So now we're only really screening for one pathogen rather than yeah. two. So it's a lot simpler. Um, oh, yeah, and a lot, e- a lot easier to make progress, breeding progress. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but it's true. You know, if you have a, a quantitatively inherited, or mo- for listeners, that what I mean is uh, multiple genes from Chinese chestnut that all can together contribute to a resistant plant, breeding that is quite hard. And if you just go in with a single gene that's been, you know, transgene from wheat, then it simplifies, nothing simple in biology, but relatively speaking, simplifies the task so you then can focus on breeding against uh, Phytophthora. And, and Phytophthora, uh, I've seen the damage that it causes in American chestnut. There was a, a, an outplanting that was an experimental outplanting uh, a number of years ago and uh, Boy, I, I remember being in the diagnostic lab when they brought in those plants that were just killed from Phytophthora. So, yeah, you've got two very aggressive pathogens to work against, and if the transgene helps simplify it, that seems sensible. Yes. So, so Jared, it, it seems to me that, that um, you know, the pop, everybody who I've uh, encountered on this who works in, in the field, and that is you and Bill Powell, and others uh, view these technologies, the, the, the hybridization from Asian species or the transgene from wheat, these different approaches are not competing, but are actually complementary. Uh, is, that, is that how you see these? Absolutely. Um, we've just actually started doing some of these initial crosses between that cross material and transgenic trees. And the goal is to see, is there a, you know, when you combine resistance from Chinese chestnut and the transgene from wheat, you actually have an additive effect on resistance. So you, you have greater progeny with greater resistance than through either approach alone. And the strength of the back cross program is many years of 
finding and identifying these flowering American chestnuts, which are rare, and incorporating the, them into the breeding program and conserving the germplasm, even just the American chestnuts that are susceptible to blight, putting them into orchards that we can use for breeding. And Bill has, you know, potentially higher blight resistance than we have in or we will achieve in the backcross program with a simply simplified inheritance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have these two programs and it just seems like it makes a lot of sense to combine both approaches. Um, and we will do that, but we will also, you know, there's some folks that do not want to plant transgenic American chestnuts and will still continue with, you know, this backcross program where we do have non-transgenic material available to people that want to plant non-transgenic material. And then there's people, especially around Bill Powell in New York that are, they, they want essentially pure American chestnuts, except for that gene from wheat. So they just want to outcross the transgenic tree to uh, pure American chestnuts. So we're offering people a range of choices um, mm. for when they want to plant these, this material. That's true. So there's no requirement that you use the transgene on your, in your property, for example. You, you, you want to give choices. Of, is that right? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I should have asked this, but after three generations, does, does it look like an American chestnut for all intents and purposes, three backcross generations? Yeah, it's um, all of the leaf and stem characteristics are, um, you know, exactly like American chestnut. Mm-hmm. So that I means, yes, it, we have recovered the American chestnut form, although there is still variation within the population. There's some trees that are a little more Chinese and less Chinese, mm-hmm. uh, but still it's like, for all intents and purposes, you can't tell the difference between our backcross trees and, a, and an American, pure American chestnut, except that it has enhanced blight resistance. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, it- as I prepared for this interview, one of the things that occurred to me was really the importance of nonprofit foundations um, in in addressing things like this. Because you, you know, the American Chestnut Foundation has this long term goal and long term commitment, well beyond any any three or five year federal grant would allow. And uh, you know, and the same I think is often true for uh, pri- the private sector. The private sector funds important projects worldwide in all kinds of ways, but. Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine the private sector following, um, you know, funding this program for, for many years, many decades is, is required. But, but the American Chestnut Foundation does. And it, this reminds me of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. For example, they're funding, now they fund a lot of different types of agricultural work. It's not all bioengineering, but um, they're funding work to, um, to uh, see if, if uh, key genes for nitrogen fixation can be uh, engineered into grains. And imagine a day without the need for nitrogen fertilizer in grains that would be distributed freely and uh, no differently than what's happening in American chestnut. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's really important. That the, the, these two examples really highlight the importance of foundations in addressing long-term challenges. Yeah, I mean, we, the American Chestnut Foundation is a, a citizen science member-based organization. So we get a lot of our funding from private individuals. You know, you can join the American Chestnut Foundation. You go on our website for $40. You get all of our, you know, materials and magazines on what we're doing. You know, there, we have larger donations. We give you seeds from our backcross program. Uh, 
but yeah, it is private individuals and foundations primarily that fund this work. And it takes a lot of, you know, there's a lot of fundraising and philanthropy and administration that's required to keep this going. So, um, yeah, it's really dependent on the, you know, we also get a lot of help from volunteers that maintain our orchards. We have over 500 different orchards up and down the range. So these people have dedicated many, some of our volunteers have been working with us for uh, multiple decades now. Mm. And um, so we get a lot of help from people that are just interested and captivated by this story and want to make a meaningful contribution. Yeah, how exciting. Yeah, so listeners, if you're interested in um, supporting the work of the American Chestnut Foundation, I'll go ahead and make the pitch um, that, uh, you know, that we'll, we'll put the website on the, on the uh, you know, the podcast, Talking Biotech podcast homepage and, and uh, allow you to uh, choose uh, whether your support is financial and or uh, other uh, uh possibilities that that the foundation may need so currently the bill powell has been and his team at suny has been doing a lot of experiments to show that the introduction of this gene doesn't have unintended consequences so one of the things they're looking at is does it affect the mycorrhizal fungi the fungi that colonize the root and help and help the plant take up nutrients from the soil so they're making sure that that the wheat gene doesn't um, interfere with the chestnut's ability to, um, you know, to have mycorrhizal associations. They don't want to. They want to make sure that it doesn't affect the growth of the tree. Uh, that um, it doesn't affect pollinator associations. It, that the le- chestnut leaf litter, the things that eat chestnut leaf litter, like tadpoles, or even screening, you know, putting is leaf litter of transgenic trees with tadpoles and having them feed on it and see, uh, you know, what their, the growth of the tadpoles after they feed them with the transgenic tree versus the pure American. So they, you know, they're doing, going through all of these experiments to demonstrate that there's no harmful ecological consequences for introducing the weed gene. And the goal is to submit this, um, package for regulatory review with all of the results of these experiments, including the other thing is with the FDA is they got to make sure that the introduction of this gene doesn't affect the nutritional quality of this, the nuts. Uh, so they have demonstrated all of, uh, all of these things um, as of today, and they are planning on submitting their package for regulatory review to the USDA, the FDA, and the EPA, um, sometime this fall and winter. And then the time frame from when they submit that package to when the um, decision is made is typically around two years. Okay. So um, that tree won't be available widely for another few years at least. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, you, you guys carry on at the, uh, in the Backrass reading program and uh, yeah. Yeah, we're carrying on with the backcross breeding program, finishing our selections using genomics. Um, we're continuing to find and preserve the native American chestnut diversity. Um, so that those are the main things we're doing to prepare for, you know, outcrossing this uh, transgenic tree to many different American wild American chestnuts. I, I mean, I'm really appreciate appreciate the time to talk to you today, and I really appreciate all the work that's been done in the past from all of the volunteers and the collaborators and our funders that have made this work possible.
wonderful. Yeah, it's been my pleasure to talk to you. So thanks for taking the time, Jared. So once again, uh, Jared uh, Westbrook, from the Director of Science from the American Chestnut Foundation, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech. Write a review on iTunes and tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to deliver more about exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Vincelli, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. And Dr. Westbrook forgot to mention that he used to be a student of mine in molecular and cellular biology class. Dork. <laughs> yeah, he was in our class at University of Florida and glad to see our graduates going out and doing well. Nice job, Jared. And I'm on a plane, that's why it sounds so loud. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at Calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.